You're listening to our podcast series on the book of Ephesians, and uh, we've been going section by section through the book of Ephesians uh, just to try to get us into the Bible. Um, One of the purposes of this, and I've said it in every episode, but I think it bears repeating, is that we need to be in the Word of God. When we talk about reading the Word of God, we're not just reading some kind of literature written by some wise people back then. But Christian theology and our confession of faith teaches us that the word of God is God-breathed. It comes from his mouth. It is of divine origin. And so when we read the word of God, we're not just summoned to learn, but we're summoned to submit and we're summoned to obey. That it is telling us the truth about God, the truth about us, and the truth about our relationship to God. And that's really important, especially in this section that we're going to cover today. We're going to cover Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. Just as a recap of where we've been, Ephesians chapter 1, we open with Paul glorifying God and blessing God for the riches of his grace that he's poured out onto us. That if you're a Christian, you are redeemed from sin you, you are forgiven for your sins. You, you are adopted as a child of God. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit, God himself, for your future inheritance. And that God is, through Jesus Christ, reconciling all things to himself. So God is the one initiating this resurrection project for creation. He is the one initiating this salvation towards sinners. And this is amazing in light of our condition, that we are dead in our trespasses, following the lusts and the patterns of the world. And God in his grace, not because of our potential, not because of how uh, much we promise to turn a new leaf, simply because of God's abounding grace towards those who rebel against him. He has saved us by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, meaning we believe in the gospel message that Christ died and rose again for sinners. And we can receive that free gift by this thing called faith, which is trust, a wholehearted trust in the work that God has done for us apart from works. Now, that doesn't mean that works don't matter because God has prepared works for us to walk in uh, that we might obey him and that these works come in the form of love in the local church. Paul in chapters two and three and four speak about how the local church is the center of God's activity in the world. That God in Paul's day was uniting Jews and Gentiles, two different cultural groups separated by dietary laws and sacrificial laws and all these these things that, that once were ethnic markers are now removed in Jesus Christ so that there's a new foundation, that God has taken these two groups and made them one new man in Jesus Christ because they're united by the Holy Spirit of God. That's the foundation of the church. And God wants his church to, like a body, build itself up in love. Every part relies on each other. We have one faith, one baptism, one Lord. We have a unity that is bought by the blood of Jesus Christ that we cannot erase. Now, we can, we can work against it. We can, as we'll see, grieve the spirit. But we cannot destroy this fundamental reality that God has created in us. In fact, we are to believe that God has made this true, that he has united us in Christ. And then we're to live that out in the context of the local church. Now, the Apostle Paul is going to get really specific about what that means. So I want you to keep in mind as I read Ephesians chapter 4, 17 through 32, some of the ways in which Paul calls us to live out this new life 
by grace that God has done, uh, how he calls us out to be a community shaped and molded into the image of Christ. Listen to God's word. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. There's two major ideas that Paul gives in this little section. The first is his command. We should no longer walk one way. In the case of the audience he's writing to, that Gentile Christians, but by extension Jewish Christians, should no longer walk like the Gentiles, which is a roundabout way of saying don't walk like pagans. Don't walk like people who don't know God. Don't walk as though God is not the Lord of your life. So number one, Paul says, don't walk like you used to walk. But number two, he says, instead, walk in love and in truth with your neighbor in the local church because you're members of each other. So don't walk this way, walk this way. But the this way that you walk in is, is centered around how we treat one another in the local church, whether we speak and act towards one another in truth and in love. That's the counterculture that we're supposed to create in this new man that Paul describes the church as. Let's look at that first section. Paul says, you must no longer walk like the Gentiles. And then he gives a reason. He says that Gentiles and your former life, this is the life enslaved to sin. We can all look at this as our pre-Christian days. Before we were in Christ, verse 17 through 18 tells us that we were darkened in our understanding, uh, that our minds were futile. In other words, we had all this information, but sin darkened our understanding of it. It distorted it. Well, we knew facts about Christianity, maybe. We, we had a sense of a moral compass, but, but it was all distorted by sin because it didn't lead us to worship. It didn't lead us to moral obedience to the law of God. And so our mind, which was meant to listen to God, uh, to study his word and apply it, became futile. It became ineffective. It, it was not fulfilling the purpose that God had intended for it. And what's 
the reality of it. Well, Paul says we're alienated from the life of God due to our ignorance. Right? Now, this ignorance is a, it's a willful ignorance, right? Sometimes people say or act as though being agnostic is sort of this elevated, humble spirit. And Paul says, no, nobody's agnostic. It is a moral issue that your mind is in rebellion against the truth of God. It is actually a form of pride to say that. And because of our pride, our minds are hostile toward God. And so we cut our life off from God. And that results in what Paul calls a hard heart. Right? What, what does he mean? It, it, it's in, in the Old Testament, we see the imagery of hearts of stone becoming hearts of flesh. And the idea is that a heart of stone is one that is hardened against the things of God. And it must be transformed into a heart of flesh so that you love the things that God loves. Paul says, before you were converted, your heart was hard. And he uses more descriptors. It was callous. You had no moral sensitivity, uh, you, to, or at least not the kind of moral sensitivity that you ought to have. Your conscience is no longer operating in accordance with the law of God. And you're given to sensuality. All of your feelings guide your life. Greed, wanting money and, and, and power and impurity, all kinds of evil sexual desires. And he says that, that you're giving yourself away to them. You're throwing yourself towards all these sinful, dark things of the world. And whenever you indulge in evil, a couple things happen. One, the return of what evil gives you. It might be pleasurable in the beginning, but it, it, it's, it's a diminishing return. And two, your conscience becomes more and more seared and hardened to where you're doing evil things and you're not even feeling guilty about it. So we stubbornly reject the reality of God for the illusion of sin, for the darkness and futility of a sinful mind. And this is a moral issue. It is a moral issue whether or not you believe in God. It's not you kind of looking for a nice spirituality to help your life. No, this is rebellion. And every human being is called to repent. And it's very difficult for us to recognize that we are a, a, a created entity that is accountable to someone else. That God himself is the one with whom we are contending with. Paul says, you're not like that anymore. You're not a pagan. And I love this phrase that he uses in verse 20. He says, that's not who you are because you have learned Christ. You have learned Christ. That's a great description of discipleship. That's what it means, right? What does discipleship require? It requires hearing, teaching, and applying the word of God. Following Jesus, that's what it means. And Paul says, look, if you've learned Christ, then you've heard about him, you know the gospel, you've been taught proper doctrine about him, and you know that he's the truth. He's the true way of life in contrast to our ignorance. You're now from a state of ignorance to a state of truth, a state of rebellion to a state of obedience and submission to Christ. And what that means is the discipleship of Jesus Christ, the way that we are being molded into his image, comes from knowing him, from learning about him, and from imitating the life of Christ. That's what it means to be in him, that, that we are now identified with Jesus Christ through the gospel. And he says, and, and, and well, if you want to think about it, conversion is this disruption into your life. You were, you were going down this one path and then you're converted and now everything's changed. Your category's changed. And now you have a new master. 
And discipleship is the retraining of your habits and your life and your thoughts toward God, toward righteousness and holiness. It's turning your whole life around. That's what repentance is. It's, it's this turn away from sin toward God. And Paul says those who have learned Christ do that. And he gets more specific. He says it's the difference between your old self and your new self. Right? Your old self belongs to your former manner of life, your pre-Christian life, where you were enslaved to corrupting desires that were deceitful. Right? Paul uses the language of deceit. It's fooling you into thinking you're pursuing that which is beneficial to you in the long run. You're pursuing things that you think are going to bring you joy and satisfaction, and it's foolishness. But your new self is created after the likeness of God. Your new self is Christ-like, and that becomes the core of your decisions. Now you are ruled by holiness and righteousness, right? And he says your new self is a renewed spirit of your mind. What's that? The spirit of your mind is the core of your allegiances and your decisions. It's what it's the, the center of your values, the seat of your will. And so there's this process where we kill our sin in our will. We, we kill our sinful habits and desires, and we, we bring to life the good desires of Christ, of righteousness and of holiness. Right? You know you're living as a new creation, not by how emotional you get all the time, not by all the things you post on social media. You know that you are living the new life when your decisions change. When your decisions change, when you stop choosing to sin and start acting in ways that conform with the word of God. Now he gets more specific. It's not just you by yourself trying to be holy in your room. He says, look, this comes into play in the local church. Verse 25 says, what does this look like in the church? A couple things. You speak the truth in love, right? Why? Because you are members of each other. Christians are members. We belong to each other. So we, we treat each other with respect, but we also speak the truth to each other, right? And, and that's why it's so important. He says, you can only speak the truth first when you've put away falsehood. The, uh, the, the, the Greek word is the same word that we use for something like pseudoscience. I think it's pseudos. It's, it's the idea of it's, it's a false, deceptive way of viewing things. A pseudoscience is a, it's a false kind of science. It's, it's not real, right? It's not keeping with the truth. So Paul says, there's all these lies that you have, all these pseudo-truths in your mind. You got to put them away, right? And only once you've put away what's false can you begin to speak what's true to those who are around you. And he says, look, but where does the love come in, right? Uh, And he doesn't explicitly talk about love, but all these are expressions of love. He says, speak the truth, but be angry and do not sin, right? And, And he knows human nature. He knows, look, we can all be about the truth and we can be righteously angry about injustice and evil and sin and perversions. We should be. There are things in life we should be angry about because Jesus Christ was angry about them too. But human beings have a tendency, you and I, that we can hold on to even good, righteous anger too long and it becomes bitterness and hatred. And that's when it begins to poison our system. So he says, yes, be angry at the right things, but do it in proportion to the offense. Because once you are disproportionately angry towards something, you're sinning. 
And he gives a good little kind of practical advice thing where he says, look, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't hold on and fester onto all these bitternesses and the ways you've been wronged. You have to let it go. Keep short accounts with others. Don't let the sun go down on your anger with your spouse, with your friends, with your kids, all these things, because that is how Satan will tempt you to divide members of each other. Anger unchecked can morph into bitterness and resentment. And Paul says, I don't want you to do that. And then he talks about uh, people redirecting the whole of their lives. Now that you're in Christ, if you once were a thief, A, stop stealing. But that's not enough. Don't just stop doing the wrong thing, but start doing the right thing. Instead of stealing, use those skills that you used in stealing. And with your hands, do honest work so that you can now earn a good wage. But not just do honest work, but, but now you can share with those in need. Notice the turn, what sanctification is. It's this gradual turn from an inward focus outward towards God and towards your neighbor. That's, that's, the, that's the, the pattern that we see. So if you're a thief, stop stealing, yes, but start honestly working and using your labors now to serve others. Before you use, you worked just to serve yourself. Now you work to serve other people. Think about that with your career. It doesn't mean you should quit your job as a, as a you know, lucrative real estate agent or banker or whatever. It just means now you have to reorient and go, now I'm working to provide for those who don't have much. Now I'm working to help those in my local church to love and bless and show compassion to other people. That's the transformation. It's very practical, right? And this is where it comes down to everyday life situations from your work to your conflicts and then to your speech. Paul says, let's not speak with corrupt talk, right? Uh, he's not just talking about coarse language, but he's talking about, are, are you overly critical? Are you overly cynical? Are you always uh, knocking people down? Are you slandering people? Stop doing that. No longer speak with that corrupt manner, right? But he says, don't just stop speaking entirely. We still need your words. But use that, that sharp wit of yours to build other people up. Use that uh, alertness to dangers in the world to love other people and to warn them about dangers in a way that builds them up, right? I mean, there's so many ways that we can retool the way we use our language. But notice what he says, give them a good word or, or build them up as fits the occasion. In other words, there's discernment and wisdom there, right? Job's friends said good and true things, but they didn't fit the occasion. They were misjudging the reasons why Job was suffering. So sometimes, there's a right thing to say, but a wrong time to say it. And so it requires discernment, right? Proverbs 25, 11 says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. And then the next verse, it says, like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a, wi is a wise reprover to a listening ear. So when the, the Holy Spirit chooses us to be words of encouragement, to speak words of encouragement, to build others in the body up. And when people hear what you say to encourage them, which can and sometimes be a form of correction, they go, wow, this is amazing. This is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. It sounds like a great thing, right? But it requires two things. It requires, as Proverbs 25, 25 12 says, a wise reprover, right? The person giving uh, the correction or giving the word of encouragement needs to be wise in how they do it. But also the person receiving it has to have a listening ear. They have to be open and receptive and humble to receive it. So it's a two-way street. 
right? And love and truth require both wisdom on the person giving the truth and also humility on the person receiving it, right? So when thieves start to work for people and their benefit rather than their own, when, when we stop being angry uh, disproportionately to our offenses, and when we start to build people up instead of tearing people down to the church, that's a beautiful thing. And when we start to do the opposite of that, and we start to tear each other apart and, and be self-focused, Paul says that that's grieving the Holy Spirit. That's verse 30. He says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Why? Because in the Holy Spirit, God himself, we are sealed for the day of redemption. Right? The Spirit of God is, is God. He's personal because he can be grieved because he were ripping up what he has united. So Paul says, look, when you start to, to, to be harsh and bitter towards your fellow Christian in the church, when there is unresolved resentment, when there is there's malice, when there's wrath, anger, clamor, bitterness, all these things that Paul lists, when that's happening, it's offensive to God. You are ripping apart what the blood of Christ and the giving of the Spirit has brought together. Right and, and malice, that's the one word I want to focus on in, the, in, in this list. I mean, this is more than just anger. Anger at times is acceptable and, and justified, but malice is never justified. Malice is this hatred. It's this desire of positive harm towards others. Do you have malice in your heart? Is it really righteous anger? Has righteous anger morphed into a hatred and malice and a lack of forgiveness to your brother or sister in the church? In Christ, you look at social media, it's full of malice, masquerading as righteousness and righteous anger. And we have to be very careful in this polarized age that we are not slandering fellow believers, that we are not holding malice towards them, that we are not letting resentment and envy and bitterness and a lack of forgiveness grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And Paul says, don't just turn away from these things, but put on Christ, right? Put on kindness, tenderheartedness, right? It's not just this fluffy feeling, you know, if I love this person or just be really nice to people. Now, Paul has something very specific. What is kindness? What exemplifies a tender heart? Not a hard heart, a soft heart of compassion. It's this, forgiveness. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is one of the Pinnacle acts of kindness and tenderheartedness. Absorbing the offense and responding in love. Not holding sins against you, against the person who sinned against you. And he says, this is what Christ did. Christ's tenderhearted, tenderhearted kindness resulted in a costly forgiveness. And he says, if you're going to be no longer walking like the Gentiles and now walking like Christ in love, in truth, it's going to require you to walk that path of costly forgiveness. Think about all the political, uh, social, cultural, all these tensions in our culture. And think about, is that happening in the church? Who, who are the people in your church you can't stand? Who are the people who have sinned against you in the church? Are you willing to be tenderhearted and kind? and forgiving towards them, not forgetting, not acting as though you weren't a victim of something, not acting as though something evil is actually good, and by no means diminishing the severity of the things that you've suffered. But are you letting the sun go down on your anger? Are you, are you letting 
the Lord Jesus Christ be the model of tenderhearted kindness and forgiveness for you. Because before you talk about everyone else's problems, we all have to look in the mirror and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Am I full of malice? Am I clamoring? Am I full of bitterness and wrath? Lord, forgive me, help me, and help me walk by the power of your spirit in this new life you have promised. Hope you enjoyed this. I hope this was edifying to you. Please share this with people if you feel like it would build them up, and we will be back next week as we continue our study in Ephesians.